please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We are studying this book of Romans, but I want to remind you, it's really a letter. It's a fairly lengthy letter, at least by our standards. And it was written by the Apostle Paul to to an actual church in the city of Rome, probably uh, around A.D. 60, give or take a few years. And Paul had never been to Rome. He wanted to give them the summary of his teaching. And so he wrote this letter, the things he wanted this church to really know about the Lord Jesus Christ and about what he had accomplished. And it's instructive just to think about how someone might have read it from the beginning. They wouldn't have broken it up across a year, at least not at first. The first thing they would have done is they would have gathered and read the whole thing out loud uh, to each other. And that would have taken a significant amount of time, but that's how they would have handled it. And so it wouldn't be broken up over pieces. So part of what I'm thinking is, is how I want to keep the passage we're about to study in its proper context, which is the context of the whole book. If you were to look through the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, you would find about five imperatives. That is, five commands. Here's what you should do in 11 chapters. In chapter 12, there are almost 40. And that is because Paul teaches every church that he goes to, there are things that are true about God and about the world and about what God has done. And you must understand those first or you'll misunderstand all of the commands. You must understand that God has set His love on you. That He has answered your sin and your rebellion. He has forgiven you. He has given you resources from heaven so that you might be transformed and renewed from sinner moving toward saints. Moving toward Christ-likeness to be renewed in your whole humanity. He has done all of that before He gives you commands. And the commands are in the context of God's law. And what it means very simply is this. You do not do these commands in Romans 12 or anywhere else in the Bible in order to get God to love you, in order to make sure God is happy with you, in order to make sure He won't get you back. You obey the commands because God has already loved you, because He has already filled you with the hope of His favor and His grace and of eternal life. He has already set His affections on you. And so the way someone who is in love wants to be around their lover. That's the way we respond to God. And these commands help us draw near to Him and to experience Him and to know Him well. We see the commands like that. And so we're about to read a section that is rich and full with commands. I want to help us see how those are connected to the mercies of God from chapters 1-11. through to see how they are responding to God's kindness and His undeserved favor, His grace. He's given to us through His Son. We're going to begin reading in verse 14, but before we do, let's pray for God's blessing as we read and study His Word. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for the Word we're about to read that Paul wrote, inspired by Your Spirit, so that we could say these are your words 
and that You've preserved them now for almost 2,000 years that we could read in our own language the words that Paul wrote to this church in Rome and through these words see what You are like and to know the kinds of things that You are doing in all of Your churches, to know the kinds of things that You're doing in us, to fill us with faith by the work of Your Spirit as we read and study Your Word. We're utterly dependent on You and we pray You would help us understand and respond, that You would subdue our sins and make us more and more and more like Jesus who has loved us with an everlasting, sturdy love. And now we want to love Him because He has loved us first. We pray You would help us do so. As we read Your Word, let us see our Savior and respond to Him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 12, verse 14. This is God's Word. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's Word. It is completely true, and it is utterly trustworthy. Several years ago, Karen and I were going to do some Christmas shopping. We had gotten a babysitter. We planned everything out. We were heading to a mall that was a little over an hour away by interstate. The mall was right off the interstate. So we're coming up the ramp very close to our destination. And I was getting, you know, my game face on. Christmas shopping is, you know, serious business. And I uh, had, uh, you know, a plan. I was going to go get this done. We didn't have a ton of time. And, you know, with babysitters, it costs more. You're... It's not just your time, it's money. So we were heading up there. And I got to the, to the ramp, top of the ramp, and standing there near the top of the ramp was a man holding the cardboard sign that said something about food, wanting food. Uh, I don't remember what the sign said because I was doing my very best not to make eye contact. I didn't want to see him and, and see him as a human being. I just wanted to go shopping for you know luxury items for my family. And as I started to make the turn and go away, Karen said, aren't you going to do something for him? And it couldn't have, that simple question was as if the Holy Spirit were speaking from a cloud. It was so clear what my obligations because of Christ are that driving away from him was, well, it was against my faith. It was a denial of what I believe. And my wife, who was thinking much more clearly than I was at that time, corrected me. And so we turned around and spoke to him for a minute. I believe we got him a couple of cheeseburgers. 
was all that he really wanted. It wasn't really a serious imposition at all. I just wasn't prepared to do what God had called me to do. And there were a couple of things that went wrong in that. And this passage helps us see some of the things that might have gone wrong. The first thing it tells you. I'm going to just tell you up front before I actually tell you this. Uh, I got this outline from Sinclair Ferguson. He uh, preached a really brilliant sermon on this passage and used this outline. And I'm stealing it completely because it was way better than anything I had been working with. But his first point, and my first point, is that God's grace leads us to be a blessing. God's grace leads us to be a blessing. Look what happens here. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. The idea that we must be a blessing comes almost directly from this beginning of the chapter in verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1. This is something that's always in your mind as you're reading the rest of the book of Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, or some versions read, in the view of God's mercies, remembering what you have heard from chapters 1 through 12, or 1 through 11, remembering how God declared and showed you in chapters 2 and 3 Everyone is a sinner and everyone is righteously condemned. No one will go before God and say, you didn't do enough or it wasn't really my fault. Every mouth will be shut. There's no excuses. When you recognize that's who we were and yet Christ came so that He could make us righteous. He came to be the propitiation for our sins, it says in chapter 3. And He came to suffer in our place and satisfy the wrath of God so that we would never experience God's justice was met and His mercy was flowing because God was satisfied. Our sins were taken care of. And then He sent His Spirit to you that you might have power from heaven to begin to be renewed in the whole person. That you would be able to say, I am dead to sin and I'm alive to God. And so I can change. And God says, so now I want you to remember, there's no condemnation for you if you're in Jesus. And I've given you my Spirit, and you can't be separated from my love, no matter what, because I'm gracious and glad to bless you, though you don't deserve it. And you see, as I'm riding up, riding by this person who is in need, what I had to think was, this stuff that I have, this plan I've got, the, the gifts I'm about to buy, those are mine by right. I have earned them. Whatever he's got, he's probably earned that too. I'm just going to drive on by. But I'd forgotten that everything I have in my life, every blessing, was something that God had given me undeserved. It was gracious. God is in the habit of giving blessing upon blessing. When Paul writes to the Ephesian church, he says, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God hasn't spared you anything. He's given you an inheritance that can't perish or spoil or fade. It's guarded for you in heaven. He has secured you in His favor. Not because you are working so hard, 
Not because you were diligent in being righteous and faithful to God. Not because you had something you could offer Him, but simply because He is gracious. And as I drive by this person who had nothing to offer me, and who, uh, for all I know, may have gotten himself in that position. I don't know. But as I drove by, I felt superior. And so, I deserve what I had. He deserves what he gets. And it's a denial of what I believe. Which is that everything that we have is God's blessing by grace. And if God has been blessing us by grace, that means we ought to in turn be glad to bless those who are around us. The passage says, bless those who persecute you. Well, how much more should we bless those who aren't persecuting us? Bless those who are friends. Bless those who cross our paths barely. Bless those in every part of our lives. We ought to be a blessing simply because God has blessed us. He has been gracious to us. But, but there's another aspect to this. In verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is going to express how we can become a blessing. If you want to be a blessing to your neighbor, you want to feel with them their lives. When your neighbor is rejoicing, you rejoice with them because you feel their joy. You take joy in their celebration, in their victory, in their triumph, in their gifts and their blessings. You stand next to a neighbor who is weeping and you join them in their feelings. You live, as it were, in their life for a moment. I want you to realize this is what Romans has been saying Christ has done for you. That He took on your flesh. That He stood before a God who was condemning because of sin for you. He took your spot. He wasn't just empathetic. He literally became your substitute. And now, as a way for you to receive that empathy, you do the same thing with those who are around you. And again, you can see how that was cut short in my encounter with this man who was just hungry. I didn't feel his need. I felt mine. And I denied him his. Sometimes it's easy to show empathy to feel with people who are like us. You know, if somebody works hard and they take care of their family and they go to church and they do the stuff that they're supposed to do, kind of like I do, then you have some kind of bad thing happen. I can be really empathetic. It wasn't really your fault. Let's, let's be together in this. It's when it's somebody who's not like you. Maybe they aren't moral. Maybe they aren't particularly religious. Maybe they aren't particularly responsible. And we look at them and say, yeah, I don't know, you kind of deserve that. I don't know how to be a blessing to every person. I think it takes creativity, it takes thoughtfulness. I don't think being a blessing means simply, you know, always saying something nice. Sometimes being a blessing might be to tell someone, you have to change. After all, Jesus did tell people, go and sin no more. But we want to be a blessing to everyone, not because they deserve it, but in response to Jesus' grace to us. 
How can you be a blessing? Think about people who are around you. Neighbors you live near. uh, People you work with. Folks you run into contact with at Walmart. At every place you go, this thought ought to run through your head. I am so blessed. How can I be a blessing? That is the way Jesus is. And to experience Him is to live like Him. The second thing that Sinclair Ferguson said and that I want to say, grace leads us to live in harmony with other people. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. I mean, to see, he starts by telling you three things that are getting in the way of you living with harmony with other people. The first one, he says, that will get in the way is your pride. Do not be haughty. The moment we think of ourselves as superior to another person is the moment we've created a, a wall and a barrier between relationship with that person. There can be no harmony between someone who thinks they're better than someone else. You, you know that. You, you know it most by when someone who's felt superior to you and you think, I don't want to be around them. And it creates discord and distrust and dislike. How does grace teach us that? Well, grace starts by saying everything we have we've been given. And so how can I feel superior to someone if all I have is something that was given to me by God? More than that, the grace in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus says that unless the Son of God were to die in my place, the only thing I really deserved was an eternal punishment from God. And I don't really feel superior to anybody knowing that that was the trajectory of my life. We shouldn't feel proud The next thing that it tells us is that we're going to look at other people and see them as undeserving. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. It ought to be the practice of Christians to think there is no one beneath me. There is no one who is too insignificant There is no one who is so sinful. There is no one who is so troubled. There is no one who is so difficult. There is no one who is so far away from the gospel and from respectability that I can't associate with them. There is no one who is too low. In a British church where, again, I'm still from Sinclair Ferguson, he was there for a funeral of a godly man from the church. And the church was very full. And as the service was about to begin, perhaps even after it had just started, there walked in a woman 
who by her dress and by her demeanor, he could tell was uh, a woman who wasn't very high in the society's classes. He imagined that she probably hadn't even finished school based, again, on just her appearance, although that could be wrong. We could tell that she was, British speak, utterly common. There was one seat that was accessible to her, and it was next to the only man in the congregation who had been knighted because of service to the country. She sat next to him and began to weep at the loss of the man who had been so much in their church, and they held each other as they cried together. And I want you to see that's precisely what Paul has in mind. That the grace of God levels the playing field. There aren't in the church important people and unimportant. Elizabeth Elliot, who became herself famous because her husband and colleagues had gone to, uh, to, be, to evangelize natives of South America and had been killed in doing so, and the wives went back to evangelize the same group. Rather than holding a grudge, rather than cursing those who had persecuted them, they blessed those who had persecuted them. They were living out Romans 12. She was asked by a Christian news magazine, who's the most important Christian woman in the world? She smiled and said, all I know is we don't know her. She's probably living in India. She likely has cancer and she's probably caring for people's children. You see, that's exactly right. The whole sense of values that we live by gets turned upside down. There aren't any lowly people in the church. Outside the church, there are plenty. We have a, a, a culture that worships achievement and accomplishment and possessions, and there are plenty of people who have none of that, and so they are low in the culture. But when they walk through the doors of the church, when they are around us, there are no lowly people. Grace says we're all even. We all needed the Son of God to die. And it only makes sense. Pride, self-exaltation, keeps us from living in harmony. But so does looking at other people thinking they are undeserving. And there's another thing. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. The third thing that's going to keep you from living in harmony with other people is when they have hurt you, when they have done sins against you, when they have done evil and you have experienced it, when someone neglects you, when someone overlooks you, when someone gossips about you, when someone sins against you, your thought is, I am done with them. I'm done with them. I don't, I don't need this in my life. And I want you to know that the grace of the, of the Gospel, you have Jesus against whom you had done evil. He didn't give up. But He was prepared to enter into a relationship with you day after day. As the end of Romans 11 had said, He held out His arms to obstinate people all day long. And so, three things. Pride, self-exaltation, looking at others, thinking of them as too low, 
and being hurt, being sinned against. Those are the things that can keep us from living in harmony with others. And the Gospel helps us draw on resources from the Lord Jesus to turn away from our pride, to not look at others as undeserving, and even to bear the hurt and yet to offer again. But look how realistic Paul is. In verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He knows that this relationship that you're offering takes two people. And so the one who has hurt you, the one who has been proud next to you, the one that you have at once thought was too lowly, you offer this relationship knowing that it has to be returned. You live at peace as much as it depends on you. This does not mean that you simply must take whatever sins people must do. Because sometimes in their sinning, what they're saying is, I don't want this relationship. As people hurt you, you're saying, if you're ready to have a relationship with me, which means you have to repent of your sins, you must stop hurting me. I'll live at peace with you. I'll enter into this reconciled relationship with you. And the same thing is true of the Gospel. Jesus does not give you His grace so that you may go on sinning against Him. He gives you His grace that you may repent of His sins and enter into a relationship with Him. That's what this passage is saying. We live in harmony with others, even the ones who sin against us if they're willing to do so. Grace leads us to be a blessing to all without exception. It leads us to live in harmony with all that we can and it leads us to overcome evil. Verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him if he is thirsty. Give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Possible that when I say, you know, if your enemy gets hungry, you should feed him, you say, I don't know how I would do that. I don't know what it would mean that I have an enemy. Well, that's a good thing. That would not have been the case for these Romans. But the picture is really clear that those who are evil and those who have done evil, you don't feel threatened by their evil. Or that you continue to be faithful. You continue to obey God because God overcomes evil with good. It would have looked very dark on Good Friday when Jesus, though He had been good, was being executed for it. But good cannot die. And so the resurrection came and and all that evil had done gave way to that which was good. You must have the settled confidence that God is overcoming evil so that you aren't threatened by it. Let me put this in a very practical today's example. If you look around politically, there seems to be a, a, a moral decay that is happening that, that feels threatening to us. As you see the homosexual rights being more and more put into uh, the law and being observed, as you see more and more those who think that it's wrong, being marginalized, being set aside, being denied their 
ability to say that it's wrong with their actions, with their businesses, and so forth. As you watch that sort of caving in around you, the first thought is to say, I feel threatened, and now I'm going to try to manipulate and and look for power and protect my place. But the Gospel says, love your neighbor. Do good to those who persecute you. Keep doing good and watch as God overcomes evil. I don't really know what that's going to look like. I don't know if that looks like something that will happen in weeks, months, a couple of years, or perhaps 500 years. But it takes the settled confidence that what God is doing is real that what God is doing is overcoming, that what God is doing is going to flourish and survive so that you don't feel threatened by the evil around you. And you continue to be faithful. You continue to do good. You continue to trust this God of grace who overcomes your evil not by manipulation and by power, but by sacrifice and by loving you. Your willingness to sacrifice and to love your neighbor, though your neighbor has done evil to you, is like planting a seed. And then that seed begins to grow. And nothing can stop it. I want you to take notice as you walk out of the church today. Just look at the sidewalks and the bricks. And you'll see them all buckled up. You know why they're buckled up, right? Because that heavy cement that's inches thick that is intimidating to us, a little root began to grow underneath it and began to spread out. And no matter how heavy and strong and well-built those sidewalks are, they will always give way to life that's growing. And God has said, I have put life in the world. So you trust it. It's going to grow. And it's going to survive and it's going to overcome. And so you can forego power and you can forego all kinds of levels of influence and manipulation. You can rest comfortably in the knowledge that God has brought life to you. And so you follow Him. You do good. And see if it doesn't overcome not only the evil in your own heart, but the evil around you too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, This is an ambitious message that Paul gave the church in Rome because everything in us wants revenge when we are hurt. And everything in us wants to look at other people and see how they will measure up and whether they are worthy for relationships or not and harmony. And everything in us wants to seek blessing rather than give it. And so we need to be transformed by grace. We want to live in light of God's grace, of the grace of the Lord Jesus, of what you have done to rescue us. So we pray, keep us in view of your mercies and help us believe that your good in us will always overcome evil in us and in the world, that we might live faithfully to your grace in the Lord Jesus. Amen.